Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. Today is Valentine's Day, and this is part one of a two-part discussion of the Brookfield Asset Management family of companies. I'm your host, Nick Seipel, and today I'm joined by Motley Fool contributor Matt Delalo via Skype. How are you doing, Matt? Doing great. How are you? You know, I'm doing great. You know, I'm excited for Valentine Valentine's Day tomorrow. Love is in the air, and we're talking about a company that you really love today, Brookfield Asset Management, and the whole family of companies we were talking about before the show. That this is uh, your number one holding when you net together all 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 of the underlying businesses. So, can you just talk about off the top of the show what really makes you like this business and this family of businesses so much? Uh, I like them. Um because they've really done well for me over the years. I think I've held Brookfield for maybe 15 years, and I've learned so much through this holding. Uh, Brookfield, their CEO, Bruce Flat, is just so smart. He's like the Warren Buffett of Canada, and uh, you know his shareholder letters are right up there with Buffett's, in my mind, is something that should be read every quarter. So um, it's just been a great learning experience for me, as well as an enriching holding. Yeah, and this let's go ahead and talk about Brookfield Asset Management. That's the parent company of this family of Brookfield companies. Depending on how you count, there's four subsidiaries, but you can also count there's a REIT vehicle as well as they own a majority stake in Terraform Power. So this is this is a large number of companies. But talking about Brookfield Asset Management first, this is a company that has over a hundred years of history. You know, I thought it was really interesting reading about this company that it started from a Canadian, some Canadian financiers in 1899 bought. Uh, some assets in Brazil, and then from there they've really grown over time. And they just for, uh, started taking uh, outside investment dollars just in 2001. So, so the ability for folks outside uh, of the actual business to invest in the company ha- has only been around for about 20 years. Um, can you talk a little bit about you know the company has evolved over time? But can you talk about what is Brookfield Asset Management? What's their business today? I think the name actually really sums it up. They're an asset manager. So they own things that produce cash flow. And as you mentioned, they have, you know, it's different subsidiaries. And each one focuses on a different aspect. You know, we have property, we have infrastructure, private equity, and renewable energy. So they, uh, they manage assets in each one of those groups and they make money off of that, that business of managing these assets for not only themselves, Brookfield owns a lot, um, you know, huge stake in each of these companies, but for private investors, and that's kind of where they've been building that uh, that asset management aspect of it to get third parties like pension funds and for, um, it, those type of um, institutional investors involved. Right. I saw that you know they have three hundred thirty billion dollars under management. Uh, of that, thirty billion dollars is their own uh, cash that, that that's into the business. While uh, the other three hundred billion of that it comes from various institutions, I think they have over five hundred institutions invested um, in their in their various family of funds. What What's really interesting about Brookfield to me is how they're counter cyclical in the way that they invest. So you know, uh, typically they invest in, in out of favor assets and hold them uh, for, for a long period of time until those assets do come back into favor, and then they rinse and repeat over time. Um, can you talk about uh, just what we've seen from Brookfield in the past year? How how have they been uh, been performing? What what are we seeing from the company just just in two thousand eighteen? Well, they haven't reported results yet um, for the fourth quarter, but so far it's been a, a good year for Brookfield overall. Um, each one of their subsidiaries has grown uh, funds from operations, which is uh, the way that um, REITs and those type of 
entities uh, classify their earnings. So it's been another growth year. They continue to launch new funds. Um, they just had a, a huge real estate fund closing of like $15 billion. So it's been a very good year for them. They've made a lot of acquisitions. It's also been a year where they started to sell things. And they, that's a big driver of Brookfield is not only do they buy low, but they sell high. And they found that there's a huge disconnect between what public investors are paying for assets and what other private institutions are paying. So that's been a big driver there is to try to maximize the value of what they, they hold in their funds. Um, you know, once they've gotten squeezed all the growth out, then they'll sell it to somebody else who isn't as focused on the growth. Sure. And, and, and let's talk a little bit about their balance sheet. It really reflects the way the business is structured and that they're an asset manager. 85% of their balance sheet is invested in listed securities. Of that, most of it is Brookfield Partnerships. And they've really been able to, to generate uh, significant cash flow um, out of those securities and have really been able to grow it over time. Can you talk a little bit about you know how the company has been able to do that and what their strategy maybe entails. We maybe describe that a little bit, but maybe maybe an additional you know thread pull there. Sure. Yeah. They're 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 different than like a a BlackRock or a um uh um that those type of asset managers where Brookfield owns a huge chunk of these um, assets and what they've tried to do is separate that ownership into um, the asset management side. So. That's where we've gotten some of these separate um, listed entities. It's because Brookfield found out that the value of the assets they they own is the market isn't fully appreciating them. But um, and especially when you look at the amount of cash flow that they're pulling in from these fees from managing assets, so they've kind of shifted gears over the year to let's put these into different entities that investors can understand and let's focus on. The cash flow we're getting for this asset management business because investors tend to pay more for that type of cash flow. So there's been this shift over the years, uh, you know, to focus on let's get these this off our balance sheet, but still on our balance sheet because you know they they own a, a large chunk of these um, listed entities. But it's so that it, it kind of draws your attention to this asset management business. It's just generating lots and lots of cash flow and will generate even more in the future as they start monetizing um, some of the assets in their funds. Yeah, and one thing I found really interesting, you talked about having assets on the balance sheet, but they kind of aren't on the balance sheet, is how they use leverage. When you take a look at Brookfield's balance sheet, particularly their debt load, if you weren't super familiar with the business, you might you might be really intimidated by it. They're about a $41 billion company, but they're carrying over $100 billion in net debt on the balance sheet. You know, Just so investors can understand how to think about that in the context of Brookfield, uh, how, how do you view their leverage as it as it uh, relates to the way the business operates and how they structure their investments? Yeah, they do something different than you know. If you're going to own a business, you'll have that debt on your balance sheet, and you know between you and the bank or you and other investors, Brookfield does it on the the each business level. So it's not on the corporate level; it's on the business level. So, for example, they own a um, pipeline in Brazil that um, their infrastructure group bought. Um, when they bought it, there was no debt on that, that pipeline. But as interest rates in Brazil improved, they were able to you know, layer in debt. But it was at the, the, the pipeline level, not at the Brookfield corporate level. So it reflects on the balance sheet that you know they have this debt, but it's all the way down at that um, pipeline level. So 
they're, you know, they call it non-recourse. So if the pipeline goes bankrupt, which is highly unlikely, um, but uh, it's not going to impact Brookfield. They might have to take that entity into bankruptcy and, and restructure there, but it's not going to have any impact on Brookfield's balance sheet. And that's their, their game plan all the way through. They'll structure each one of their businesses to an investing grade credit, you know, so it might be five times earnings for one business, it might be two times earnings for another business, but it's each structured at those levels. And that makes it a little bit difficult when you're looking at Brookfield Asset Management because it's like, oh my goodness, $100 billion in debt, this is, you know, over levered. But once you dig into it, you see where the leverage is, how it impacts the company, and it's not as big a deal as it might seem. Sure, and you talked about a lot of this debt being carried down at the subsidiary level. Let's talk a little bit about kind of the relationship between the Brookfield Asset Management parent company and its relationship with the subsidiaries. So first, first off, when you think about investing in Brookfield Asset Management versus investing in the subsidiaries, how should investors think about that? What are the pros and cons to each when it comes to whether you want to own the full asset manager itself or you want to target one of these smaller? Companies, uh, you know, like like say uh, the renewable energy business or something like that. H- how does that relationship work out, and how should investors think about that? I would think of Brookfield Asset Manager as almost a holding companies. You know, it has um, you know these four subsidiaries that uh, you have the opportunity to participate in. So it's almost like a four business units. Um, you know, so it's at that corporate level. So you have this diversification across these um, four really interesting businesses. Uh, and then uh, you can almost look at the listed entities as like a pure play. Like if I really wanted renewable energy in my portfolio, I would look at Brookfield Renewable because they're a pure, pure play on that, um, you know, really huge market opportunity renewables. So the same thing with infrastructure. There aren't that many infrastructure companies out there. Brookfield Infrastructure is one of the better ones. And so that's an opportunity to have this, you know, focus. And in addition to that focus, both are all of their um, listed entities, other than the private equity, um, they pay really high yielding distributions. So you know, if you're an income investor, that's a, a great way to get income. Um, so those are the, you know, how I would look at it is like, oh, this is a great way to target and make income versus Brookfield's just a kind of the overarching um, play on. Uh, real property and real um, assets. Sure. And then another thing, another kind of follow-up question when we're talking about the relationship between Brookfield Asset Management and its its subsidiaries is how Brookfield makes its money is predominantly through management fees when it comes to operating these funds, as well as management fees that it charges to the subsidiaries. Um, we had we had a question from one of our, one of our listeners, Noel Sayers, where. He's concerned about how that Brookfield Asset Management, the fees that it charges down to the subsidiaries, it really looks like the fees that a hedge fund is going to charge. They have they have a base load fee that they'll they'll charge a percentage of assets, as well as a performance based fee, depending on how how the subsidiary performs. So when you look at Brookfield Asset Management, it it makes money from fees that that it gets from these underlying businesses, as well as it owns a significant stake. In those subsidiaries, to the point that it really controls the operations. How, how do you view the potential conflicts, or, or do you think there are any potential conflicts uh, between the fee structure that Brookfield Asset Management charges to, a, to its subsidiaries and the relationship uh, between the, those entities? 
Sure. Anytime you have like a, a parent-child relationship with that, there's going to be a conflict of interest. They they do uh, try to do, they do a good job of eliminating it as much as possible. But it, it, it is the fee structure itself is is patterned after that two and twenty that you see in hedge funds and private equity. However, um, it's more of a hybrid between that fee structure and like the master limited partner general partner that you see in the energy midstream where um, you have these incentive distribution rights that the uh, master limited partnerships will pay to the general partner. So it, it's a way that the, the parent company makes income off of their, um, their child uh, aside from just owning it outright and um, you know getting the distributions. But there's a reason for that and it's justified by the services they provide and the you know simple things like accounting hr and then the deal flow a company like a brookfield property partners wouldn't be able to uh on its own uh you know get into some of these investments that we're we're seeing it able to make where it's it's able to take out some really large um uh, real estate investment trusts it bought um general growth partners and it bought more city and you know this deal flow that Brookfield's able to 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 cultivate and to leverage, you know, because they're able to bring on all these institutional partners, and it's able to allow these entities to to grow faster and that and to um, acquire assets that they wouldn't likely have been able to on their own. So, yes, there is you know some um, the the fees are high uh, compared compared to what they they could be, but. It, it's it's the incentives are aligned um, so that investors in both entities will profit and uh, you know Brookfield does own a big chunk and that's different than you find in a lot of hedge funds where Brookfield pours a lot of its own money into these funds it pours a lot of its money into the, these entities so that that helps align it with investors. Yeah, and you look at some of these uh, things that the, that the subsidiaries invest in. <laughs> Brookfield Asset Management is putting some of their own money in as well, so they're aligned both on the investment level as well as you know uh, they're aligned. They they have skin in the game when it comes to a lot of these projects, both on, both on the asset management you know level as well as in the subsidiaries. Let's transition and talk a little bit about. These subsidiaries. We mentioned that Brookfield Asset Management, the parent company, a large portion of its revenues come from management fees that it's going to charge to subsidiaries. So when you think about the operations of Brookfield Asset Management, you're really going to want to look through to these to these uh, smaller companies to understand each kind of like you mentioned. It's it's kind of different uh, uh, operating segments of, of the business. And so the first segment we want to talk about is Brookfield Property Partners. That's ticker BPY. Uh, this uh, they launched in 2013, and Brookfield claims that this entity has transacted in more properties over the last 25 years than any other business in the world. It has 87 billion dollars in total assets. Matt, can you give us a, a brief overview of, of how Brookfield Property Partners uh, invests uh, its assets and, and what vehicles it's looking for uh, to allocate its capital towards in the property arena? Yeah, so Brookfield Property Partners has basically three segments. It has core office, which are uh, some of the best office properties in the world. They'll own, uh, you know, what are called Class A offices in cities like New York, London, Sydney. These are, you know, they'll attract top tenants like law firms, investment banks, those sorts of top tier clients. So these are premier office properties. That's, you know, one part. And then, Retail is another part where they own um, 
some of the best malls in the in the, the U.S. And that was through their investment in uh, General Growth Partners. And um, you know, it, it's it's not your typical mall. These are destination locations um, that still are driving a lot of traffic. And then the third part is a um, they they invest in a bunch of funds that Brookfield has set up that are opportunistics, and they'll invest in a whole range of things. They own hotels, they own um, car dealerships, student housing, uh, manufactured housing, um, almost anything they'll they'll own in these funds, and those are designed to generate um, a return on investment. So. They'll, they'll try to kind of buy low and sell high. And, um, you know, Brookfield sees that as just an, an opportunity to, to make more money for their investors by, uh, to, by investing in these funds so that it can earn um, more of a capital gain than just the, the income that it would earn from the, the core properties. Yeah, Matt, you mentioned this general growth properties acquisition, and I really want to dive into this one a little bit deeper because I think it's indicative of Brookfield strategy and just the way they look at how they want to manage assets. So, you mentioned they acquired general growth properties in 2018 for $15 billion, and it's the second largest mall operator in the US. But talking about how Brookfield really is opportunistic in acquiring these businesses. Um, they were the only bidder on general growth properties. Uh, they, they, so uh, nobody really wanted to, to, to invest in this company. You know, mall, malls are out of favor. Brookfield realizes an opportunity to, to if I'm the only if I'm the only uh, bidder on this property, I can really set uh, the price point. And 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 so I, I think it, it's it's indicative of Brookfield's strategy of. Going against the grain when it when it comes to investing uh, their assets. Uh, what thoughts do you have about about that strategy and just the way way Brookfield went about investing in, in this general growth properties uh, REIT? Yeah, this story with general growth is really interesting because it goes back to the financial crisis. Brookfield uh, and uh, a hedge fund helped uh, get general growth out of bankruptcy, um, you know, years ago, and they got a thirty percent. 30, 33% stake in the business. I forget exactly what it was. And they've owned that on their balance sheet for years. And um, it, it's, it had done pretty well, but with uh, the rise of Amazon and, and um, online uh, e-commerce, malls have kind of fallen out of favor with investors. However, um, just because investors see the death of the mall doesn't mean it's coming. And Brookfield has done a, uh, or General Growth has done a good job of uh, owning the top malls that they can, and then redeveloping them. One of the big concerns has been when companies like Sears and J.C. Penney's are closing stores. That these are huge. Um, they they appear to be huge hits to a mall. However, uh, General Growth has been redeveloping these um, anchor stores into other things like dining. They're bringing in entertainment, uh, movies, theaters. Um, yeah. So this redevelopment is really the key to bringing these these malls forward and they're also adding things like hotels and apartment buildings and it's really making these a destination a live work play type atmosphere where they're going to 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 continue to grow revenue from these businesses 
Yeah, I think when Brookfield takes a look at these assets, they don't they don't see it just for what it is today, but what the, what it possibly could be. Uh, you know, they, they've they've talked about they have a densification strategy that they want to do across all of their retail assets, which which is like what you mentioned, Matt. Just uh, taking them all and then converting that asset into a you know a more valuable form, whether it, whether it's adding residential or movie theaters or what have you. Another interesting thing about uh, this general growth transaction was that Brookfield created uh, the Brookfield Property REIT. Uh, ticker BPR as uh, in, in relation to this transaction, and that's an entity that that's set up to deliver the same economic interest that you would get from an investment in Brookfield Property Partners. However, through a REIT vehicle, can, can you talk about how you know if you're thinking about investing in Brookfield Property Partners, uh, how should you think about choosing whether to you know invest in the MLP, uh, you know Brookfield Property Partners, or investing in the REIT uh, BPR? H- how should investors think about that when they're thinking about investing in, in Brookfield property? Yeah, it really just opens the door to more investors because uh, a lot of them don't like the the K one Schedule K ones that you get with the the MLPs. Uh, it's it makes doing your taxes the pain. Um, where typically you can't own those in a retirement account. Although Brookfield, they're not traditional MLPs, so that's not so much an issue. However, REITs, more investors understand a REIT, and that was a demand almost of uh, the investors in general growth property. They wanted an, a, to invest in a REIT, so Brookfield created this and. If it's successful, I could see them eventually converting Brookfield Property Partners into a REIT um, because they'll they'll go where investor demand is, and they're they're focused on you know if being a MLP or a partnership is holding down the value of the company, but being a REIT wouldn't, then they'll go in that direction. So it's almost like a test in that direction. They've been talking about doing a REIT for years, so this is kind of their, their way of testing that out. Yeah, Matt, and let's talk about something else that's going on with the business. They've been Brookfield Property has been really open with the fact that they believe uh, their their units are, are undervalued. So they believe their shares or their units, excuse me, are worth around thirty dollars per share, uh, per unit. However, uh, as of today or this past week, uh, they're trading around in the twenty dollar range, and. They bought $200 million in units back at the end of Q3. They just approved another $500 million repurchase uh, between $19 and $21 per unit at the end of Q4. So they're being really aggressive there. How do you think about that as an investor? Is that, is that encouraging to you, seeing how aggressive they're being about buybacks and how open they are about how much they think their business is worth relative to what it's trading at today? Yeah, absolutely. Brookville, they know value and they see value in themselves right now. And uh, one of the things that they've been known to do is they'll sell assets um, it, that just investors aren't aren't valuing the company the way they value it. So they'll sell like a forty nine percent, for example, of a mall in Las Vegas, and it'll it'll show that hey, this mall's worth a lot more than the market's giving us credit for. And this is a, a way that they're they're trying to unlock the value and say, hey, our real estate as, assets are worth a lot more than the market's giving us credit for, and they're they're doing everything in their power really to to prove that they really have some valuable assets, and they're they're putting their money where their mouth is here. Yeah, I, I think it really is encouraging to me to see when a business is open about saying, hey, we think we think. Uh, our shares are worth this amount of dollars, and we're going to buy until it until it gets to that uh, to that price. And, and and Brookfield has been really aggressive there. Uh, before we go away and and talk about Brookfield Business Partners, 
Matt, what should we be thinking about as investors when we look forward for the next few years at Brookfield Property? What opportunities they have for growth over time, and what kind of a return an investor might be able to expect if they were to put capital to work today? Sure. Yeah, one of the reasons I really like the Brookfield companies is because they're very open about what they think they can do, and in this case, they have a plan on how they can create value, and they're looking out five years and. For example, they see just the rents on their existing properties, the escalations on those should grow income 2 to 3% per year. And then you layer in their ability to sell properties for higher values and then use reinvest that money to buy properties at lower values. They believe they can grow earnings you know, in a mid-single-digit range, and that should support um, distribution growth of about 5 to 8% per year. So you're looking here at a total return. You add in the current distribution, uh, I believe it's around six percent, and then the growth of five to nine percent, and uh, you're looking at almost a double-digit total return. And that's not even factoring in their ability to boost that unit value um, by ten dollars a unit. So it, it, it has a potential for growth and in income. Um, and so, it's a, so to sum it up, it's a it's an interesting way to play the global property market. To earn some income along the way, and uh, to just—it's a, a value stock as well. So it really hits on all three things that investors want to look at in the company. Yeah, I think any of these Brookfield companies, but Brookfield Property in particular, it's not going to be something that's going to blow your blow your mind when it comes to equity appreciation over time. However, you have a very reliable uh, return over time that you can depend on. You have management that you can really trust to allocate your capital in a way that you can be. Uh, you can you can trust them to do so. I really think it's really an, an attractive investment, uh, you know, to generate a reasonable uh, rate of return relative to the risk that you're taking. Now yeah, let's absolutely let's transition into talking about Brookfield Business Partners. That's ticker BBU. This is the youngest of the Brookfield family of companies entering the market in 2016, and it operates in the private equity arena. Can you talk a little bit, Matt? About how Brookfield Business Partners invest its capital. Yeah, it's it's the different one from the the other three in that it really has a wide net. It'll invest in anywhere that it sees value. It owns a company that uh, Westinghouse, which supports nuclear power plants. It owns a company, uh, stake in a company that, that does offshore. Um, supports offshore drilling. It, it really goes across uh, the grain, and so they're looking for value. And it's traditional private equity where they'll take companies, either take them private or they'll they'll do a, a recapitalization investment where they'll they'll basically take over management. They'll you know take over fifty percent or more of a, a stake in the company so that they they can control. And their aim is to actually. Uh, induce change at the operating level to cut costs, to get them growing the right way, to get them out of bad businesses. So it's a true private equity. Um, it's one of the few opportunities that investors have to invest in private equity if they're yeah. not rich. <laughs> right, right. Uh, yeah. And they're. Uh, the way they use leverage, and we talked about earlier the way the way they use leverage at the asset management level. But I really thought, reading through one of their letters to unit holders, the way that Brookfield Business Partners uses their leverage is particularly interesting. Can you can you talk about that a little bit? The way that they structure their debt to really minimize the risk that they're taking when investing in these private equity investments, but also putting themselves in a position to where uh, if the investment pays out, they can capture a lot of the upside. 
Yeah. It, again, it's you're you're talking traditional private equity, so they'll invest. Um, and, and we'll use the Westinghouse deal as an example. It was a four billion dollar deal. I think they put in less than a billion dollars in equity, and they put in three billion dollars in debt. Um, so you know that's that's pretty highly levered. And however, that debt that they put in is non-recourse, which means that if Westinghouse goes bankrupt again, um, it wouldn't impact Brookfield um, business partners. It, it would, you know, they would have to restructure Westinghouse, um, but not um, Brookfield. So it, it it really insulates them from a situation like that where uh, a, a business holding that they have goes bankrupt. However, because they they have um, a good amount of leverage then when that business performs then the amount of upside they have can be significant they they've had some really big upside um closes in the past couple of years where they've, they've sold business for multiples of what they initially invested in them yeah matt and let's talk about this westinghouse acquisition a little bit just just to pull the thread for investors i mean brookfield business business partners as you mentioned invests in a wide variety of businesses but i, I think the westinghouse acquisition gives a good example of the way that they think about uh, investing and the opportunities that they look for um we mentioned earlier when we talked about uh, the the REIT acquisition uh, for Brookfield Property Partners, how how they acquired that. And there was the, there were the sole bidder and, and, and things like that. Like similarly, this Westinghouse acquisition, as you mentioned, they grabbed this business out of bankruptcy. This is uh, nuclear businesses, particularly over the past few years, have really struggled with. with with new nuclear projects getting up and running, you know, really, I mean, Westinghouse went bankrupt as a result. Um, but they really don't have any fear to go into these businesses where they see an attractive valuation, and that's exactly what they did here with Westinghouse. Can you talk about what the competitive position is of this Westinghouse business and why Brookfield really found it as a very attractive opportunity for them to invest in? Sure. Yeah, as you mentioned, the reason uh, Westinghouse went bankrupt is because it it was involved in two, building two um, nuclear power plant projects that just went way over cost. They promised the customer will build it for X number of dollars, and it was just ridiculous um, that how far over the cost went. So they they had no choice but to declare bankruptcy. There's no way they could deliver on that. However, the core business and what Brookfield's kind of saw is that they help. Um, service nuclear power plants and, and other power plants in addition to that. Uh, it's under long-term contracts, and they'll earn recurring cash flow by doing maintenance, by supplying fuel. So they saw this this underlying business of, of servicing nuclear power plants as being very lucrative, and if they could restructure it, uh, they see a lot of upside um, just by cutting costs, getting out of building nuclear power plants, and just focusing on how they can serve nuclear power plants well. Yeah, and they talk about how they want to invest in businesses that have high <laughs> barriers to entry and just wide moats. When you look at Westinghouse, they service 65% of global nuclear plants worldwide, so they really have a strong position, as well as you know, the nuclear industry is not uh, the type of industry that's going to see a lot of new entrants. So, if you see an attractive uh, valuation uh, here with Westinghouse today, it, it is likely that, that that will continue out into the future. So, it, it was really attractive both on the, both on the the case of they were out of bankruptcy, so you could get a, get an attractive price, as well as they're operating in an industry that is really unlikely to see new entrants come, at least in the near term. Yeah, absolutely. Um, let's talk a little bit about. 
how their results played out in 2018 and the way things are looking out into the future. Similarly to Brookfield Property Partners, Brookfield Business Partners has been very open that they see their units as undervalued and they are they are repurchasing shares. Um, what when we're looking out into the future, where are we seeing the growth opportunities for Brookfield Business Partners and? and Based on what we saw in 2018, how excited are you about about those opportunities? It's such an interesting company because opportunities are everywhere, and they've shown that by where they've gone out and made acquisitions. So you really don't know what they're going to do next, other than they're going to look for value. They're going to look for businesses that the market, um, you know, that have problems right now, but. They can, through operational changes, maybe it's new management, maybe it's just getting out from um, you know, a, a lot of debt, whatever the, the case may be, they'll look for those opportunities where they can buy at the bottom of a, a business cycle um, and, and then kind of ride it all the way up. And then they'll sell it as the, the business cycle you know, tops out. And so they will look for those cyclical businesses. We've seen them with um, oil and gas. They bought a lot of oil and gas assets in the past um, several years as, as you know, the, the market downturned. And then as um, conditions have gotten better, they've been starting to sell those. So it, it's more of a, you're not going to get the dividend that you will in some of the other entities. It's all about capital gains here. So um, if they do well, investors should do well as the unit price rises. Yeah, definitely an interesting business to be involved in. As you mentioned, Matt, it's hard to get exposure to that as an individual investor. So to so to get that exposure from from a company like Brookfield, that really, as as we mentioned, we'll continue to mention on part two of our discussion, is really prudent in in, in investing their capital and really has a strong track record of doing that. Um, any last things you want to mention before we close out part one of our discussion on the Brookfield family of companies, Matt? I just think that investors should um, take a look at these companies. They, they offer uh, a unique opportunity to invest in things that you just don't see out in the market these days. All right, folks, make sure to tune in next week where we'll be talking about Brookfield Infrastructure Partners and Brookfield Renewable Partners. But for now, uh, we'll leave you a happy Valentine's Day. We hope everyone has a fun, happy, and romantic holiday. Thanks for coming on, Matt. Thank you. As always, people on the program may own companies discussed on the show, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against the stocks mentioned. So don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. Thanks to Rick Engdahl and Dan Boyd for their work behind the glass. For Matt DeLalo, I'm Nick Seipel. Thanks for listening, and Fool on!